Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, let me invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 7. This morning, we're concluding our series in the book of Judges. I'm sure most of us have heard the name Jeffrey Dahmer. He is one of the most notorious serial killers in, in America's history. In 1994, while he was in jail, he did an interview with Stone Phillips for Dateline News. And in that interview, he said that he believed that humanity was put here on earth by purely natural causes and death ended everything. He went on to say in that interview that if there was not a God, then why should we modify our behavior? Why shouldn't he kill and then cannibalize people? And so he did. He killed and then he cannibalized 17 people. Now, this may be an extreme example, but it is nevertheless an example of what comes from the view that there is no God and thus there are no moral absolutes. Then as we move to the last five chapters of the book of Judges, some would think that the events that we read about in these chapters take place after the death of Samson, but, but that is not correct. The truth is... These events most likely took place at the beginning of the book of Judges. We know this because of the names of two people who were identified. We're told about Jonathan, who was the grandson of Moses. And we're told about Phinehas, who was the grandson of Aaron. So, so at the very most, we are two generations removed from the generation of Moses and Aaron. It seems like when we look at the book of Judges in chapters 1 and 2, we're given a view that is taken from 30,000 feet. We see the outlines, we see the images, but we can't make out the details. We can't make out the specifics of what is happening. But in these last five chapters, we're given some specifics. We're given some clear examples of exactly what is happening on ground level. We, we, we see this up close and personal. And in this, God is giving us a picture, a clear picture of what happens when, when you and I are assimilated into our pagan culture. We find ourselves doing things that we never thought were imaginable. These chapters comprise some, some dark and gruesome sections of Scripture. As a matter of fact, many people say that this is the darkest passage of Scripture in the entire Word of God. And in these verses, we discover just how far the people of God have fallen. We're not talking about the pagan nations that surrounded them. We're talking about the people of God. As we unpack Judges 17 through 21, we see two very clear examples of the moral and spiritual condition of, of Israel in this period. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a few minutes to, to simply walk through these chapters. And then I want us to discover some truths that we can learn from these chapters. Now, two stories are told in these five chapters. The first story, the, the story of Micah, shows us how idolatry had infected the land. Now, chapter 17 opens up with a story about a man named Micah who evidently had stolen some money from his mother. 
And he overhears her uttering a curse on the person who stole the money. And so he comes to his mother and he admits that it was him that had stolen the money. Now, don't miss this. He returns the money to his mother, not because he desires a holy life, not because he is under conviction for breaking the law of God. He returns the money because he is afraid of the curse that he overheard. He is controlled by silly superstitions rather than a genuine relationship with a living God. So his mom blesses him since he returned the money. And, and in honor of his honesty, she takes some of the money that has been returned and she gives it to a silversmith. And that silversmith makes an image and an idol. And then Micah takes that image and he takes that idol and he puts them in his house. Look at verse 5 if your Bible is open. It says, Micah set up a shrine for the idol. And he made a sacred ephod and, and some household idols. Then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. Now the name Micah means who is like Jehovah. And yet here is this man who has a name that means who is like Jehovah, and he is living his life in opposition of Jehovah. Not only is he breaking the law of God, he is putting the one true God alongside the many other gods that, that he has in his life. Now, before you're too harsh on Micah, you need to realize that we as Christians do the exact same thing. I mean, when we obey our sinful desires, rather than the clear word of God, we are putting our desires before our relationship with God. When we invest our time and our energy and our money, our treasures in the things of this world, whether it be TV or, or the internet or Facebook or hobbies or, or career or whatever else, what we are doing is we're investing in the gods, little gods of this world rather than the one true God. I want you to listen to what the Bible says about, about images and idols. In Deuteronomy 27, verse 15, it says, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of the craftsman's hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say amen. In other words, God is saying when he gives the people the law that it is a cursed, it is a detestable thing to make an idol and an image. And all of the people in Israel are to know this. But here is Micah, a man whose name means who is like Jehovah, who has this idol, and he adds it to his collection of idols. So now he has his own personal shrine with collections of idols, and, and we discover in verse 5 that he installs his own son as his priest. Now, now how could he go against God's word like that? Well, look at verse 6. It says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And if you remember, the Bible teaches that God was to be the king of Israel. They were not be like the pagan nations who had earthly kings, human kings. God was to rule over them. And so in other words, they had taken God off of the throne. And now everyone was their own God. Everyone was deciding how to believe, how to live, and how to worship. So here's Micah. He sets up his own personal shrine and, and everything is good 
But then one day he has a visitor. And this visitor is a Levite from the town of Bethlehem. Now, now Levites were from the tribe of Levi. When the people made a golden calf, when, when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law from God, when the people made the golden calf, it was the Levites who stood with Moses against the idolatry of the day. And the Bible tells us that these Levites killed 3,000 of their own people for worshiping idols. In Numbers 3, we are told that, that the Levites were set apart by God. As the people were wandering in the wilderness, it was the Levites who, who set up the tabernacle, who walked with the tabernacle. It was the Levites who were given the responsibility of protecting the tabernacle, guarding the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. When they got into the promised land, the Bible tells us that the Levites were to be ministers of God. They were not given land like the other tribes of Israel. Instead, they were to live among the people, ministering the word of God to the people. We discover in Numbers chapter 18 that when the people gave the tithes, they would give it to the Levite. And the Levite would take a tithe of the tithes. 10% 10% of the 10% the people gave, and, and they would set that apart for God, and then they would take the remaining 9%, 90%, the Levites would, and they would live on that. These Levites were scattered throughout the nation of Israel, throughout all of the tribes, primarily in the cities, proclaiming the word of God to the people. But here is this Levite who travels from Bethlehem to Ephraim because he's looking for another place to live. Evidently, he he is no longer satisfied ministering in Bethlehem. So he comes and, and he begins to have a conversation with Micah, and Micah offers him a job. Now stay with me. Here is this priest, this Levite, who is called and set apart by God, who is to serve God, who is to be paid by God through the ties of the people and and now he has offered a job from an individual. Micah says, you come and work for me. You be my priest and I will pay you 10 pieces of silver a year. I'll give you clothes to wear. I will give you food to eat. Levite thought about it for just a moment and said, that sounds good to me. And so they agreed. Now listen, this Levite was to be set apart by God to serve God. And yet now he is working for a man. Instead of dispensing God's truth, he has prostituted himself for money. Now the story takes a turn in chapter 18. Because in chapter 18, we discover that the tribe of Dan is coming onto the scene. Now at the first of the book of Judges, we discover that the Danites have been given a piece of land like everyone else. And they are to go in and take this land, but... But they don't because it's difficult. And the people of the land fight against them. And so the Danites are displaced. And and they decide that they're going to look for another piece of land. Instead of trusting God and obeying God and taking the land that God had given them, they're looking for something easier. So they're going around trying to find a better piece of land. And on the way, they end up in Ephraim at the house of Micah. And when they get to Micah's house, they discover this priest, this Levite living there. They ask, how did you get here? 
And he tells them about the deal that he made with Micah. And so they said, are we going to have success on our journey? And, and the priest, the Levite, as, as the Levites of that day did, as the priest of that day did, just told them what they wanted to hear. Yes, you're going to have success. Blessing and peace to you. And so they went on their way and, and they found this incredible piece of land, a city of Laish. And in that city, they found this carefree people who were very wealthy and, and the city was unguarded and, and it would be an easy city for them to take and the Danites could come and live there. So the, the spies that came went back to the Danites and told them about this land. And so all of the Danites, the warriors, were coming now to take over Laish and on the way, they stop at Micah's house because they had seen all of the idols and all of the images and they were worth some money. And so they stopped to, to get these idols and images on the way. And, and, and as they did, the priest said, what are you doing? The Levite said, what are you doing? And, and the Danite said, be quiet. Wouldn't you rather come and be a priest for an entire tribe than just one little family? And the Bible says here in verse in, in verse um, 5 that that sounded good and made the priest, the Levite, happy. And, and so he left with them and, and they were on their way. They're going on their way. And, and as they were going, Micah discovered that all of his idols were now gone and his priest was gone. So he and some of his friends began to go after the Danites. And when they called up with them, the Danite said, what are you doing? Why are you coming after us? I mean, they had stolen his gods, his priest. And the Danites said, why are you coming after us? Now, you and I, we would say, why are they asking that? It's obvious. You've stolen from him. But remember, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And when we determine our own morality then it's no telling how far we will go. And so the Danite said, you better be quiet because some of the hot-tempered guys here, they may kill you. I want you to listen to what Micah said here in chapter 18. He said, you have taken away all the gods I have made and my priests, and I have nothing left. Poor Micah. He's made these gods out of his hands, and now because these gods that he made with his hands have been stolen, he has nothing left, so he goes home empty-handed with no gods to serve. And the Danites go on to Laish. They burn the city to the ground. They rebuild it. They rename the city Dan. And I want you to notice what it says in chapter 18, verses 30 through 31. It says, Then they set up the carved image. And they appointed Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, as their priest. This family continued as priest for the tribe of Dan until the exile. So Micah's carved image was worshipped by the tribe of Dan as long as the tabernacle of God remained at Shiloh. And so Dan became the first tribe to officially worship idols. I want you to follow with me for just a moment. Personal idolatry crept into tribal idolatry, which eventually spread and became national idolatry. That's what sin does. The Bible says it's like leaven that, that takes over the entire loaf. Sin starts small. Sin most often starts isolated. 
But if sin is not dealt with quickly, then sin will spread and spread and spread and it will take over. But notice something else we discover here. The Levite who prostituted himself to start serving Micah and then went out to the highest bidder and decided to be the priest to the Danites. His name is Jonathan. And we discover that he is the grandson of Moses. He is the grandson of the most famous religious leader in Israel's history. The most godly man in Israel's history. This is his grandson. And he's leading Israel to prostitute themselves to worship idols. Don Carson said this. One generation knows the gospel. The next assumes the gospel. And the third loses the gospel. Here's what I know. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And just because one generation knows the Lord and has a personal relationship with the Lord does not guarantee that the next generation will. And so this idolatry that started in the home of one man, by the end of this book, had infected the entire nation of Israel. But let's move on. Because in the next story, the, the story of the Levite and his concubine, we see the immorality that had infected the land. You see, the idolatry that started in one generation became immorality in the next generation. One generation compromises theology. The next generation will inevitably compromise morality. When our theology is wrong, our morality will follow. Now, chapter 19 has been called the sewer of the Scripture. Many people have said it's it's the worst chapter in the entire Word of God. Now, it begins with another Levite. This Levite has a concubine who who has been unfaithful to him, decides that she doesn't want to live with him anymore. And so she goes back to her father in Bethlehem. Now listen, this is a bad start to the story. You may ask why. Well, well, in this day, a concubine was a lawful wife. But she was guaranteed only food, clothing, and marital privileges. You would take this concubine along with your real wife, your God-given wife, And you were obligated to give her certain things, and she was obligated to give you certain things. And the law of God protected this relationship. In Exodus 21, it says, If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as men's servants do. If she does not please the, the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go without any payment of money. Now, you may ask, since the law gives this protection of concubines, why am I saying it's wrong? Since Abraham had a concubine, since David, the king of Israel, had a concubine, since we read of concubines throughout Scripture, why am I saying this is wrong? 
Well, the reason I'm saying it's wrong is because just because God allows something does not mean that God is pleased with something. From the very beginning, God told us what marriage is to look like. One man married to one woman for a left lifetime. That's what God established marriage to be. Different from the pagan world, different from the nations that lived among them, that's the way it was to be. And yet, they adopted these pagan principles. You say, but, but the Word of God, the law of God protected this. Well, I would say it's in the same category as divorce. Do you remember what, what Jesus said about divorce when he was asked about it? He said that because of the hardness of your heart, God has allowed divorce. But from the very beginning, that was not God's plan. And just as divorce was never a part of God's plan, but God allowed it, these concubines were never a part of God's plan, but he allowed it. And so here this man had a concubine, he had compromised, he was a Levite, and yet he was living like the world. His concubine went back home to her father. After a while, the the Levite decided he wanted her back, so he went to the father's house in Bethlehem, and And the Levite and the girl's father hit it off. And I mean, they just ate and drank for days on end. And at the end of the fifth day, the father wanted them to stay some more. But the Levite said, no, we need to go back. We need to get back home. And so he and his servant that he brought with him and his concubine that now he's bringing back home, go home. And on the way, they should have stopped in Jerusalem, but they decided not to because Jerusalem wasn't inhabited by the Jews at this time. It was inhabited by the Jebusites. It was a pagan city. And they felt like they wouldn't be treated right in a pagan city. And so they went to the land of Gibeah. Israelite land. And they went into one of the cities of Gibeah. And and they were planning on staying there for the night. But when they got there, no one took them in. Now you may say, what's the big deal there? Well, that was just common law. That's what you did. When, when strangers came into a city and they were staying there in the square, the people of the city would offer their homes so that the people had a place to stay, so they weren't staying outside. But no one offered this Levite, his servant, and his concubine a place to stay until an old man came in from out in the farm, the, working the fields, and he saw them, and he said, come and stay with me. Because whatever you do, don't stay outside in the city square. Now, why did he say that? Because he knew how far the people had fallen. I want you to see what happens next. And instead of me telling you the story, let me read to you Judges 19, beginning of verse 22. It says, while they were enjoying themselves, this is the man and, and, and his host, the Ephraimite man, his concubine and and the man's daughter, their family, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. That word troublemaker, don't know how it's translated in your translation, but it's the word sons of Belial that we read about in 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with the the sons of Belial, with Belial. This was one of the pagan gods in the land. So they were troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door, shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. Yes, you heard that right. 
the men of the city are beating down the door of this Ephraimite's house saying, let us in so we can have this man who is staying with you and have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing for this man is a guest in my house and such a thing would be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. And you're thinking, how in the world? But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine, pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying, the Levite. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, he was just going to leave her. There lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up. Let's go. But there was no answer. She was dead. So he put her body on his donkey, took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and he cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he set one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, let me just say, sexual perversion had absolutely taken over this town. And as we read this story, we discover that it sounds very similar to what we read about in the city of Sodom. When the men of that town wanted those angels to come out so that they could have sex with them. But the difference is Sodom was a pagan city. This was a city of God. They demand that this Levite come outside so that they can have homosexual sex with him. Now listen very carefully. When God is forgotten, when we replace the one true God with the idols that we make with our hands, there is no depth to how low we can fall. Now the Ephraimite offered his daughter, his concubine, his friend's concubine to to these men for heterosexual rape as an alternative. And and you and I read this and we go, how in the world could they do that? And, And we'll tell you in just a minute how they could do that. But finally, the Levite pushes his concubine out and the men gang rape her all night long. She's abused throughout the night. The day approaches, the man is going to leave her there because he's evidently just gone to sleep and rested as his concubine is out there being brutalized all night long. He sees her lying there on the threshold of the door. He asks her to get up. She can't. She's dead. He takes her body and takes it back home. Then he cuts it up and he sends it to all of the tribes of Israel. You say, why did he do this? Well, to get their attention. So that they could understand the seriousness of what was going on in the land. The Bible says that the people were so outraged that they assembled an army of 400,000 men to bring the guilty to justice. And so they go, the Israelites. 
And they go up against the Benjamites. And the first thing that they do is they send them a message. Give us the guilty men who have done this so that we can purge this evil from the land. I mean, any person in their right mind would understand that. These people have committed a heinous act. And they have to be punished. The sin has to be purged. That's what the law said. But the Benjamites said, no. We're not giving you any of our people. And so they go to war. The first time the Israelites attack, they get defeated. The second time the Israelites attack, they get defeated. The third time, they go to Shiloh, the place where the altar of God is, and they begin to weep before God. And God says, this time, I'm going to give you victory. And they attack. And they slaughter the Benjamites. Every single Benjamite man, except 600 of them, were killed. They went into every Benjamite town and they killed every living thing. Every living thing. Men, women, children, boys, girls, cattle, livestock, dogs, cats, whatever there was living, they killed. And then they burned every city to the ground. Revenge. We'll get even with these people. And then they went back home. They made a vow that that no man in Israel could give his daughter to any of these 600 Benjamites to be married. In other words, what they were saying is, we are going to exterminate the tribe of Benjamin. But after a while, they begin to feel guilty about this because they recognize that, that one of their own tribes one of their own tribes from their own people is no longer going to be with them. And so they try to discover what can we do? How can we make this right? And they discovered that there was a town that didn't send men to fight when they fought against the Benjamites. And so they went into that town and they killed every man and every woman with the exception of the virgins. They found 400 virgins in that town. And they took those virgins and they gave them to the 600 Benjamites. Now, if you can do math, 600, 400, 200 of them had no wives. So they said, what are we going to do? 200 of our guys don't have wives to, to carry on their line. What are we going to do? So the tribe of Israel thought about it. And they said, we have this festival in Shiloh where the young women go out and they dance in the fields. And you have those 200 men, you have them hide in the vineyards. And when the women come out and are dancing in the fields, you come out, you kidnap the ones you want, and you take them, and they will be your wives. And so follow me for just a second, if you will. Here's this awful, heinous sin of of rape and homosexuality taking place in Benjamin, But at the same time, we have the Israelites who are killing their own people and are sanctioning kidnapping for the Benjamites. That's how far the people of Israel had fallen. Now notice how the book ends in Judges 21 verse 25. It says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Again, we see that passage. 
They have no king. God is no longer ruling them. He is no longer on the throne. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. How can people fall so far? How can people condone and protect homosexuality? How can people condone and protect game rape? How can people condone uh, kidnapping and murder and, and the eradication of an entire race of people? How do you do that? Because there's no king. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Now you may say, Rocky, why why does God have this passage of Scripture in the Word of God? Well, you can write down on your note sheet. Let me give you two passages from the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 says this. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, God gives us these stories as warnings for us because the things that happened to them can happen to us. And let me say, The things that happen to them, I'm afraid, are happening to us. So how does a nation implode? Let me give you four quick things. First of all, we see God as a spiritual force to be used rather than the one true God to be served. We see this in Micah's mother in Judges 17. Verses 1 and 2, listen to what it says. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. The mother then said, the Lord bless you, my son. She sees God as a spiritual force to be used, uttering curses and blessings on whoever she chooses. We see it in the sun. In Judges chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since the Levite has become my priest. Both mother and son saw God as a spiritual force that, that they could manipulate for their benefit. Kind of like a cosmic good luck charm, a a cosmic rabbit's foot that, that if we rub it the right way, then God will do what we want him to do. You see, they assumed that God existed to serve them. It's, it's kind of like if, if we follow this certain formula, if we pray a certain way, if we do certain things, then God is obligated to bless us. God, why did you let this happen? God, why didn't this happen? God, I'm doing this the way you said. I'm supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But understand that false teaching, even though it has permeated permeated American Christianity, the, the false teaching that says that God is there to serve us is a false teaching because the opposite is true. God isn't here to serve us. We are here to serve God. All too often, we are, we are so concerned with our happiness that we forget that God is concerned 
about our holiness. And that's going to lead us to destruction. You say, Rocky, are you saying that God isn't concerned with our happiness? No, I'm not saying that. God wants us to be happy, but I want you to hear this. Write it down. He wants you to be happy because of your pursuit of Him, not other things. He wants you to find your happiness in Him, not the things of this world. Second, the nation will implode when we worship idols we create rather than the God who created everything out of nothing. We see this in Judges 17. It says, when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mama, his mama consecrated the silver, said, I give it back to you, returned the silver, gave 200 shekels to a silversmith, made an idol. They were put in Micah's house. Then it says that he had a shrine. He made an ephod, some idols, and he installed one of his own sons as priest. Judges 18, verses 30 and 31, it says, There the Danites set up for themselves the idols. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe until the, ti- or to, or the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Seems that we have a tendency to do this. That, that's what they did in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. Remember when... When Paul is talking about how the people had fallen so far, how they, they gave themselves over to unnatural things, how did they get there? Romans chapter 1, verse 23. You're worshiping, and you're, instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, you have worshiped idols made to look like mere people, birds and animals and reptiles. We create gods to our liking, gods that fit the way we think, gods that fit the the way that we live. It's not that we don't want gods in America. We want gods. It's just that we want gods that fit into our desires, our wants, and our wishes. But that's not the almighty God. Third, we see spiritual leaders, ministers, as people hired to serve us rather than people called to serve God. Judges 17, verses 10 and 11 said, Then Micah said to him, Live with me, be my father and priest, and I will give you ten shekels of silver a year, clothes and and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. And then listen to what it says in Judges 18. It says, when these men went into Micah's house, took the car of image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They said, be quiet, don't say a word, come with us, be our father and priest. Isn't it better for you to serve a tribe and clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the, the other household gods and the car of image and went along with the people. Now, understand, if Jonathan was a typical spiritual leader of that day, it's no wonder that Israel headed into ruin. He was a hireling. He wasn't a spiritual leader. He wasn't a spokesman for God, but rather he was a servant to the people, telling them whatever they wanted to hear. And he was ministering to the highest bidder. It seems today that that many people are responding to the ministry not as a sacred call, but as an occupation. It's something that we choose to do rather than something God calls us to do. 
When I was 18 years of old, age and I fell on my face before God and surrendered to God's call, my dad told me this. He said, son, if you can do anything else in the world, do it. Now, why did he tell me that? Did he tell me that because the ministry is an awful thing? No. I've discovered that, that the ministry serving God is a wonderful thing. There's nothing in the world that I would rather do. What he was saying is this. If the calling of God is not a calling that that grabs a hold of you that you cannot get away from, you cannot run from, you cannot do anything else and live, then it's not a calling at all. And I'm afraid the problem in America today is we have many people who are filling the pulpits of America, serving in the churches of America, who are called by their mamas, who are called by churches, but they have never been called of God. May I say to you, and I want you to hear my heart, that's why I have never accepted a call to a church knowing what that church was going to pay me. Now, understand, God's been good to me, incredibly good, much better than I could ever deserve. But I have never gone to a church knowing why that church was going to pay me. I remember when, when I was called to, uh, to, to Northside and Claude Sandage was the chairman of that, per, that, that search team and and I told Claude, yes, I believe God's calling me, and I, I will come in view of a call. And, and a couple of days later, Claude called me back, and he said, well, I guess we need to talk about what we're going to pay you. And I said, well, I guess we do need to know that, don't we? Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because I never wanted money to be an issue in what God was calling me to do. And yet, here's what this Levite did. And when we do that, we're going to have a tendency to serve the people rather than serving God. And hear me. I love you. And I want to serve you. And you can vote to remove me as your pastor today, but I don't answer to you. I answer to God Almighty. And I am not afraid of losing a job Because to me, this isn't a job. God will provide if I'm faithful. And you need to find men who are so passionately in love with Jesus that come hell or high water, they're going to stand on the Word of God and with the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is warning Timothy, who is who is his son in ministry. He's warning him. He said, you need to be prepared to preach the word. And then he says, because there will be some who come in who do not do that. He says, they will, they will share words. Um, that They will not endure sound doctrine. Instead, they will want their own desires and they will gather around them a number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's what people do today. Churches want people who are going to tell them what they want to hear rather than what the Word of God says. Fourth thing, we substitute divine revelation for human reason. On your screen, that's backwards. 
We substitute divine revelation for human reason. We see that in chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 5. We, we determine what is right and wrong in our own eyes. We pick and choose the passages of Scripture that we like and we ignore those we don't. We no longer consider moral absolutes as a thing that is sacred. That's a thing of the past. But understand, without spiritual and moral absolutes, what we read about in Judges is our destiny. Now, what are the results? I just have time to give these to you. We got to get through. Spiritual ignorance. The people worship, but they don't worship the one true God. Moral indifference. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. We applaud Bruce Jenner. He gets an ESPY award for courage because he comes out and says, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Our, our, our Supreme Court legitimizes homosexual marriage, a lifestyle that isn't an alternative lifestyle, a lifestyle that the Bible says is an abomination. It is detestable to God. We abort millions of babies a year in America. Moral indifference, social injustice, the weak are abused. They treated women as as property. And when we get to this point in our life, we will abuse the weak, the fatherless, the the homeless, the, the unborn. And then civil unrest, they turn on one another. Now, what is the solution? Political change, educational reform, social programs. Well, strangely, I believe the answer comes from that serial killer we started with, Jeffrey Dahmer. In that same interview... Dahmer said that he felt no reason to change his behavior because if there was no God, there was no universal morals and there was no accountability in the afterlife. But in that same interview, Dahmer said this. He said, I have since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God and that one day I and everyone else will be held accountable to God. I'm not capable of knowing Jeffrey Dahmer's heart I don't know whether he was uttering those words to get publicity. I don't know if he was trying to get special privileges. I can't answer that. But here's what I know. What Jeffrey Dahmer said is true. The only hope that we have is not social programs, educational reform, political change. The only hope we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. What has the power to change our nation? The gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit coming into a life, making them a brand new person. And when that happens, everything changes. And let me tell you, that's our only hope. Our hope isn't found in an election a year from now. Our hope isn't found in funneling more money into education or more money into social programs or more socialistic forms of government. Our hope is the gospel. If we will turn back to Jesus, we can have hope. And as we close, I want to zero this in and move from our only hope to your only hope. Your only hope is the gospel. And if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, you never received the gospel, Christ died for your sins, 
according to the Scripture. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. If you haven't received the gospel as your only hope of salvation, his spirit has not come to live in you to make you a new person. Then today, you need to do that. I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, if you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never received the gospel as your hope of salvation, then today I ask you to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I come to you today admitting my sin. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave to pay for my sins, to defeat sin and death. And today I'm trusting Jesus alone to save me. Jesus, take control of my life. Come in. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.